Hello and uh, welcome to Trinity. Uh, my name is Nigel Richardson. I'm on the staff team here. It's great to have you with us, wherever you may be watching us from. And uh, it's, uh, it's going to be great to get into God's Word this morning. I hope you guys are well. Uh, I'm going to read, then I'll pray, and then we'll look at it together. We're in Mark chapter 9. So we're in the same series called Good News in Mark's Gospel. We're up to chapter 9, verse 30. They left that place, verse 30, and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. But they didn't understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them, taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Teacher, said John, uh, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life may, uh, crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for this time together. Lord, I just pray that you, as these words uh, are read and, and, and talked about, I just pray that your spirit would help us see what they mean for us today. Help us to see why, why you had these written and what it means for us today. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if uh, we were to... I don't know, walk up to the kids' ministry here at church and look in at the kids having fun and learning about Jesus, the chances are we would be able to, if we knew the parents, we would be able to match the kids to the parents that we know, uh, mainly through looks, right? Kids obviously inherit the features of their parents. I'm told Reese has that misfortune, uh, but not just of mine, by the way, uh, but not just looks, also other characteristics as well, because children are essentially little disciples, and they follow you, right? They live with you 24-7. They listen to you, not quite 24-7. They, uh, they learn from you. If you have a child, they, they're a little disciple. They take on your habits, your characteristics. It can be quite, quite disconcerting to see that. Um, a child is basically a disciple of their parents, and it makes it easier to spot whose child is whose. Now, the same is true with Jesus. When you sign up to be a Christian, you're signing up to be a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. Um, and if you're around 
2,000 years ago that you would literally follow Jesus physically. You would be around him. You would sit at his feet. You would listen to him. You would learn from him. You would become like him the more time you spend with him. You would experience what he experiences. If, If he was opposed, you would be opposed. If he was welcomed, you would be welcomed. And it's not too different for us today. To follow Jesus today means we listen to him in the Bible as he speaks to us. We learn from him. We become like him as we put those things into practice. Um, and, and, and as we prioritize what he prioritizes, as we love what he loves, how we treat others um, the same way as he does and so on. So in the same way, we should be able to spot the children of other people because they speak the same, they act the same. We should be able to spot the disciples of Jesus for the same reason. They act like Jesus. They are concerned about the same things. Uh, They treat people the same way Jesus treated people. And, And in this part of Mark's gospel, Jesus is helping us understand what that looks like. What does following Jesus look like? What does a disciple of Jesus look like? Not what does he look like. What kind of people are disciples of Jesus? And there are probably, look, there are probably several answers to that, to that question, but I want to suggest one word that covers a lot of that ground. It, it's not an exciting word, it's not a glamorous word, but I think it encapsulates much of what Jesus uh, wants in his disciples. It's the word humility, right? I was right, okay, it's not glamorous, not exciting. Um, and actually, I, I think not always understood correctly. W- when we think of humility, what do we think? We, we think possibly someone with a quiet personality, someone with a, with a kind of modest modesty about their abilities. But huma- humility is a much fatter word. It means more than that. Now, why do we expect to see that humility in the disciples of Jesus? Well, because we see that in the person that they follow. It sounds so upside down to say it, doesn't it? But Jesus, the Messiah, God's King of the universe, the King God promised in the Old Testament, the King uh, to end all kings, was gloriously humble. God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. Now, the problem Jesus has at the moment is that his disciples are still thinking in an other-way-up way. Uh, They're thinking glory and greatness is around the corner. It's happening next week when we get to Jerusalem. The victory parade will be awesome. And every time Jesus tries to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, be killed, and after three days rise again, they respond with other way up thinking. They they don't get it. Remember chapter 8, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must be rejected uh, and, and must suffer, be rejected and killed. And what happened? Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. They're not getting it. Even after the glimpse of glory that we saw last week, in the transfiguration there's confusion chapter 9 verse 9 as they were coming down the mountain jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen till the son of man had risen from the dead they kept the matter to themselves discussing what rising from the dead meant uh, it might not be so much the resurrection that's confusing it's the fact that the son of man was dead in the first place the son of man doesn't die and suffer and so jesus decides some kind of uh, teaching retreat is what is needed, a quiet weekend away to get things straight with them. And this is what's happening in our passage. It's just Jesus and his disciples talking about what it means to be one of his disciples. Look at verse 30 in our passage. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus didn't want anyone to know where they were because 
he was teaching his disciples. What did he want to teach them? He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. So it's the same again. He had to get them straight on this, uh, on what he had come to do. He'd, he'd come to be delivered into the hands of men to, and to be killed, to suffer and be rejected. If they don't get this, then they, they won't be following in the correct manner. They won't get what it means to follow him. The whole movement can be set off in the wrong direction. But, verse 32, they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. So he asked them a question. Verse 33, what were you arguing about on the road? Perhaps they'd been hanging back as they were walking and kind of whispering animatedly to each other. What were they arguing about? Verse 34, well, they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. They're not understanding much, but they do understand that this line of discussion was not something Jesus was going to be comfortable with. So they don't say anything. And, and I think Mark puts the two conversations next to each other so that we feel the jarring, we feel the awkwardness, the discord. Right? Jesus, the Son of Man, walking along the road, the Son of Man with the weight of the sin of the world on his shoulders nearly, trying to get across to his disciples that, that that's what's about to happen in Jerusalem. It's big. Yes, the Messiah. Yes, the Christ. Yes, the Son of Man. But he will be rejected. He will, be, he will suffer. He will be killed. But, you know, blank faces. And then, anyway, which disciple do you think is the greatest? Do you, do you think it's me? Do you think it's... You know, it jars, doesn't it? It's awkward. And in verse 35, we read, Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said... And, and in that culture, rabbis would sit down to teach. We might, we might say Jesus took out his portable whiteboard and began to teach. Uh, this is a teaching moment we're witnessing here. Of course, he's not just teaching those disciples there. Is he? He's teaching us as disciples today. What's he saying? He's saying three things to them and us about what it is to be his disciples, three things that sit under the umbrella of humility and self-forgetfulness. The first one, my greatest disciples are the servants of all. My greatest disciples are the servants of all. The first thing Jesus does off the back of their argument uh, uh, with each other is redefine greatness. These are, their, these are radical words here. Verse 35, sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. So servant is the word for waiting on tables. Oh, so you, you want to be great in my kingdom, do you? That's what you were talking about on the road just now. You want to be the first, the most prominent, the admired, and the respected. Well, then you must be the servant of all. That is what greatness looks like in my kingdom, says Jesus. It, it's another reversal, isn't it? Do you remember, whoever wants to save his life must lose it. Um, whoever wants to be first must be last. Whoever wants to be great must be a servant. It's an upside-down kingdom. And notice the word all there, do you see? The servant of all, not just those who are like you, not just those who can repay you, not just those who express their gratitude to you in the way that you would, servant of all. And in case they're not sure what he means, Jesus illustrates for them. Verse 36, he took a little child whom he placed among them, taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever believes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. Sorry, whoever welcomes, 
<laughs> what did I read? He took a little child, taking the child, and says, "Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me." It's actually a beautiful picture, isn't it? You can imagine Jesus, the King of the universe, with a small child in his arms. But we need to remember that that, that culture did not idolize children in the way that our culture does today. Um, Maybe your culture doesn't, but, but for them at least, they were not sentimental about children. The children, children were the, the least significant people in society. And Jesus, he's not saying be humble like a child, which is something he says in other places. He's saying be humble like me who welcomes a child, who is a servant to this child. Um, you know, when Barack Obama stepped down as president, lots of pictures of his time in the White House came out. And uh, the, the most popular, I think, are those with him with kids and, and babies in the Oval Office. And there's a, there's a great couple here where he's, he's playing with, um, with a girl. And there's that last one, my favorite, is where he bends down and, and the kid kind of touches his head to see if he has the same hair as him. It's a wonderful kind of thing, isn't it? And, and I like that. I like what, what Obama's trying to get across about the president and normal life. But it would be a mistake for us to think that this is all that Jesus is talking about. You know, Jesus is not talking about just associating with the child in society, but serving, putting yourself under them, putting yourself out for them, preferring their needs to yours. Um, who is the child in our society, in our culture? Well, I think still the child. Okay, so on a Sunday we have a whole host of people who serve our children by teaching them the Bible. It's a wonderful thing. But I think also the, the child is the, the unimpressive person, the socially awkward person, the person for whom there is no benefit for you to be friends with, the person from a different culture, the homeless person, the person who needs serving. It's costly to serve. But according to Jesus, that is what is greatness. And it doesn't matter what your culture is, I don't think, this runs against it. Okay, Serving others is not how our culture defines greatness. Being, being served by others is how our culture defines greatness, right? And, and perhaps I can be a little specific here. This is something we all need to hear, but perhaps particularly men. Greatness for men is usually seen in power and influence and authority and wealth and being able to direct others to do what you want them to do. And perhaps I can be even more specific and, and I'll say this as an outsider, obviously, and you know, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but perhaps this is particularly true in Zulu male culture where greatness is power and wealth and being a servant as a man particularly is, is so far from greatness is the opposite of greatness. And the challenge for all of us, I think, whatever culture we're in, is not to listen to our culture, but to listen to Jesus. If he says this is greatness, this is what it is to be first, and if he showed this in his own life, then this is what I live towards. But it's hard, isn't it? It's not just countercultural; it's counterintuitive. Right? I don't want to serve others. I want to be served. That's what my heart says. It's difficult to serve others. But perhaps it helps to keep our eyes vertical, so to speak. In other words, it, it, you know, it's God's view of you that's important. 
Perhaps we think no one sees what we do. No one sees when we're prepping our Sunday school lesson, when we're dropping off a meal for someone in our group, helping someone find work, going for coffee with someone who needs a chat, having people we might not normally have in our home. But God sees. God sees everything. In fact, more than that, in some way, God experiences those things. Whoever welcomes, do you see verse uh, 30? I think. Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but the one who sent me. God just doesn't God doesn't just see what I do in some way. He receives it as if it's done to himself. So next time we're serving others, right? Try and forget yourself. Keep your eyes vertical. Very easy to focus on yourself, isn't it, when you're serving? See how great you are at serving and so on. But rather keep your eyes on God. God thinks what you're doing is great. And he receives it himself in some way. In the same way that if you do something nice for one of my kids, like teaching them every week out of the back, you've, done it, you've kind of done it to me. I experience your kindness. Don't be great in the things that matter to the world. Be great in the things that matter to God. And nothing is greater in God's eyes than serving, humility, sacrifice, love. Because that's what he's all about. And you know there are plenty of opportunities in our church to serve. Uh, if you're not in a serving team, uh, why, not, why not be great and join one? Second thing Jesus teaches them, remember under the umbrella of humility, my kingdom is bigger than you. My kingdom is bigger than you and your experience of it. Verse 38, teacher said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us, literally was not following us. So they're telling Jesus about an exorcist uh, whose ministry they've tried to shut down because he wasn't one of them. Now, what, what are they worried about, do you think? Why stop someone who's doing, obviously doing good? Perhaps they're worried about other people not doing it right. Although it seems like he was managing a bit better than they were uh, last week. Perhaps worried about other, other people taking the glory from Jesus, some kind of rival miracle-working ministry. Although he's doing it in Jesus' name, so it's probably not that. What, what are they worried about? It seems like they're worried about protecting their position at the center of Jesus' kingdom. They want to maintain control as chief disciples, if you like, over what everyone does and, and, and um, says in the kingdom of God. And it seems to be John's issue particularly in the next chapter. He's going he's gonna to ask Jesus if he can sit next to him when he comes into his kingdom. It's, it's another great example really of them forgetting the lesson they've just been taught. John seems to be seeing his call as a disciple, not as a call to be a servant of all, but a call to be entitled, to be privileged, to um, exclude others for your own sake. See how Jesus responds, verse 39. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. He's saying someone who's been given power to do miracles in his name and has therefore magnified or honored his name can't then damage his name by speaking badly about him. He's saying even if they're not part of this group, part of this 12, they can still be for us because my kingdom is bigger than you and your experience of it. 
In fact, anyone who demonstrates, says Jesus, that they are for us, that they belong to the Messiah by doing even the most basic thing for you, like giving you a glass of water, will be rewarded in eternity. Because just like when you welcome children, you welcome God. When you do these things to my people, you do them to me. As one writer put it, even the humblest act of kindness sets off a chain reaction that shakes heaven itself. The thing to see here is that Jesus is more inclusive than his disciples. And sadly, this has often been the case throughout history. And there are lots of stories of disunity and division throughout history because people didn't accept each other as true disciples. Um, I think that was partly what was behind the Reformation in the 17th century. The Catholic Church wanted to hold on to uh, being the one true church in Europe. And, and all the power that went with that, and wealth, actually. And they wouldn't recognize others. And the Reformation changed that. That was when the Church of England was established and other denominations besides. Um, fast forward 200 years, and a guy called George Whitfield is on the scene. Um, I read his biography not so long ago. And the Church of England at that time, that's the Church of England that was formed out of that situation in the Reformation, did exactly the same. They refused to, to recognize George Whitfield. Uh, and his ministry. Well, they did to start with because they ordained him. He was, the, he was their guy. But when he started talking about something called the new birth, when he, when he said what was needed was for clergy and people to be born again, they dismissed him as a fanatic. Uh, and the churches actually locked their pews. Uh, and when that didn't work, because people just sat in the aisles to listen to him, they locked the doors. And that didn't work because they just flooded into the fields, and George Whitfield started his outdoor ministry. Spoke to thousands and thousands of people that wouldn't even have fitted in a church building. Interestingly, it didn't make him bitter. At one point he said this, How can I act consistently unless I receive and love all the children of God whom I esteem to be such, of whatever denomination they may be? So for him, do you see, making the name of Jesus known was more important than any differences or distinctions. I wonder how quickly we find fault with the ministry down the road or how quickly we are to criticize other churches around because they, you know, they don't do things the same way as us. He's not saying, Jesus is not saying we abandon any kind of discernment you know, into what people are teaching. Jesus himself um, was, you know, when it came to false teaching, called a spade a spade for sure. But I, you know, I found it helpful in my own heart to check that my theological preferences and um, my, my preferences as to how things are done are not a mask for pride and the assumption that actually, you know, we are the only true believers. It's one of the reasons we try and pray for other ministries and churches from time to time to, to, to make a point of showing generosity, if we can, to other churches. Uh, because we can't be less inclusive than Jesus, can we? And when we do these things, show generosity and so on, we're actually doing them to Jesus. So Jesus is saying, my greatest disciples are servants of all. The greatest disciples in my kingdom, servants of all. If you want to start, if you want to be great, start changing nappies, saying, kind of. The kingdom is bigger than you and your experience of it. And now he says, thirdly, entering my kingdom is more important than anything. Now, if this paragraph was a movie, it would have a 16 rating to it. It's pretty violent, potentially upsetting. 
Jesus starts by talking about what happens to someone who causes one of his people to fall away or stumble. Verse 42, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. Jesus is, is warning here uh, people about causing his people, sorry, he's warning people about causing people who believe in Jesus to stumble and to stop believing in Jesus, perhaps by excluding them or, or writing them off like the disciples did to that guy because they're not part of the right tradition. Or perhaps in some other way, drawing them into sin, to sexual sin perhaps, or alcohol, maybe, whatever it is. And you can see how strongly Jesus feels about it. He uses one of his uh, it-would-be-better arguments. And I don't know if you can imagine, or if you want to imagine, having a huge stone tied around your neck and being thrown into the harbor. Jesus is saying, that won't happen, but it would be better if it did, if you cause one of my little ones to stumble. And of course, one of the ways we make sure we don't cause others to stumble is by making sure we don't stumble. And what Jesus says next is, is really sobering, isn't it? Verse 43, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet to be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, people will often say, you know, Jesus is not being literal here, right? He's being figurative. We don't literally cut limbs off, which is true. Um, and then, you know, there might not even be literally worms and literally fire. And that's true. But it would be a mistake, wouldn't it, to say, well, figurative equals not real. So Jesus is definitely using metaphors here, but he's using scary metaphors to show us scary realities, to warn us. And the word hell here is the word Gehenna, which was an area in uh, Hinnon Valley, which is southwest of Jerusalem, where human sacrifice actually had been practiced under years ago under King Ahaz, King Manasseh. It was stopped under King Josiah, who then made it a rubbish dump. And so the image, which it was to the day of Jesus, and so the image is, is one of smoldering decay, just constantly burning away and devouring worms. That's, that's Jesus' description of hell, a place where things, where humans continuously deteriorate in a decay of ha hatred and rebellion, both towards God and towards each other, forever. See verse 48, the worms don't die, the fire isn't quenched. It, it's an horrendous thought, isn't it? Uh, and I'll tell you what else is horrendous, uh, in that is cutting, cutting off your arm or your leg. Um, some of you may have seen the movie 127 Hours. Aaron Ralston, he was a climber. His arm got trapped while he was, while he was hiking. And uh, he gets trapped um, for 127 hours, after which he, he realizes he has no choice but to cut his own, own arm off <coughs> and walk out to safety. It's either that or he dies. He dies where he is. Jesus is, is presenting us with a similar choice, except not literally, right? The, ch the choice is between whatever is causing you to sin or fall away and hell. Jesus says, maybe it's your hand that's causing you to sin. Cut it off. Think about it. It's better to enter life maimed than, you know, than have that sin and throw you into hell. 
Maybe it's your foot or your eye. As horrendous as it sounds, it's better to get rid of them than to have their, have their sin throw you into hell. Um, say you had a cancer and you're going for surgery to get rid of your cancer. And the, and the surgeon says to you, look, I'm afraid I'm going to have to take out some of the tissue around it uh, just to be sure. Or, or worse, I'm, I'm going to have to take out your kidney uh, just to be sure. You wouldn't say, no, 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 it's okay. Just, I'd, I'd rather keep the kidney and just live with the cancer. No, of course not. You're going to get rid of whatever it is, whatever it takes in order to lose the cancer and carry on living. It's the same here. Jesus is saying, whatever is stopping you following me and entering life, it's just not worth it. Cut it off. He's saying, take the most drastic action necessary to avoid sin. Take action that costs you. Uh, action that hurts you, perhaps. Get a Nokia 3310 if it's your smartphone that's causing you to sin. Lose the internet at home. Get the right filters. Perhaps you need to rethink some friendships. You won't be as popular, but then you won't be drawn into gossip and materialistic thinking. Only you'll know what, it, what needs cutting off. Now, I, I don't know how you feel about this. Perhaps you feel more burdened by this because you know that your track record on cutting off sin is actually not that great. Uh, and based on what Jesus is saying here, it means that you're in great, great danger. And, and so actually in your head, the application of this sermon is to do better at cutting off sin and then you'll enter life and avoid hell. Oof, but that's quite a burden. Doesn't that feel like a burden? Not much good news in there. Well, there is good news if we keep reading to the end of Mark's Gospel, isn't it? Because we'll see that if you're a Christian, you have someone who effectively took your hell for you, who went there instead of you, so to speak. Someone who didn't just have to cut something out to get rid of sin, but had to give his whole life to get rid of sin, not his, but yours which leaves you permanently forgiven before God, permanently in his kingdom, permanently alive. Oh, so if I'm trusting Jesus, then this paragraph doesn't apply to me. No, if we're trusting Jesus, we're definitely to feel safe and secure in him and what he's done for us. Hell actually is not something for us to fear. Praise God. But if you respond to that news by doing whatever you want, by indulging whatever sin you want, you haven't truly turned and trusted in Jesus, have you? Are you really a disciple if you look nothing, nothing like the, the person you claim to follow? A Christian surely hears the warning in these verses. Yeah, throws himself on Jesus for rescue and then starts cutting things out. Not because he's afraid the Lord won't keep him, but because he knows that one of the ways the Lord does keep him is through warnings like this. And then by giving him the power to, to heed that warning and cut things out. You don't earn entrance to God's kingdom by cutting things out, but you do confirm your place, so to speak. It's like the confirmation email you get after booking something or buying something online. Someone else may have paid for it, but you get the confirmation email. Jesus paid for your sin. He took your hell for you. He put his spirit in you, and your confirmation is the fruit of fighting sin and cutting out sin. That, that he produces in you. It, it won't be happening perfectly, but there'll be a desire in you to be cutting out sin. Look at what John Owen says famously, the mortification of sin. He says, do you mortify, it means kill, do you make it your daily work 
Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Of course, if you haven't turned and trusted Jesus, he is saying to you exactly this. You're in danger of your sin taking you to hell. Um, that's, that's what Jesus is saying, right? I think we can agree, agree on that. If you spend your whole life rejecting God, preferring whatever it is, I don't know, the God of money, pleasure, the approval of others, just your own autonomy, can you not expect him to reject you? Jesus is saying, whatever you're holding on to, whatever's stopping you following me, it's not worth it. It really isn't worth it. Um, there's a terrible bit at the end of Lord of the Rings, I don't know if you remember, Gollum, and obviously his precious ring, right? And as the ring falls over into the fire of Mordor, um, Gollum jumps into it, and, and you see kind of a smile on his face as he gets his ring and then falls into the fire. And you sort of think, oh, what a fool, you know, hanging on to it right to the end. And Jesus is saying a similar thing, as harsh as it may sound. Let go of whatever it is and grab onto me. It might cost, but it's better, it's much better to enter life without that than, than go with it into hell. And that life, by the way, is eternal life. We enter eternal life eternal in quality, eternal in quantity. It's better than anything else we could hope for. Jesus says, my greatest disciples are the servants of all. Don't you want to be a great disciple? Let's be serving. My kingdom is bigger than you and your experience of it. Praise God for that. But let's be generous and warm and loving towards other Christians. Entering my kingdom is the most important thing. Because eternity is at stake. Jesus has taken your place if you're trusting him. So now start cutting things out. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much for, thank you for your mercy to us. And uh, Father, as we think about um, these unpleasant thoughts at the end, Father, just think about um, what you have saved us from, an eternity uh, without you, an eternity that downwardly spirals in hatred and rebellion and father i just thank you that jesus took that for us i thank you that as we turn and trust in him his life is given to us we enter life and father i pray that you would help us see this perspective that it's better to enter life without some things without some comforts without whatever it may be that's causing us to sin it's better to enter life without those things than to to spend an eternity with them in hell. Help us to be servants. Help us to be humble. Help us to be like Jesus. For his glory we pray. Amen. Good to be with you. As always, give us a shout if you have any questions or comments on uh, nigelhrichardson at gmail.com if you, if you want to shoot through.